Defa Minister Claire Barber joins me on agenda this week to talk about a new fisheries management agreement and more tweaking of the planning system. We'll talk about fish later, but first a consultation is open on the Government Consultation Hub, which is looking at increasing planning fees as well as making a few improvements to the system. Why has this consultation been brought forward? There's been a few things that have come in over the last uh, well, probably six months to a year, certainly since the Built Environment Reform Programme has been going, where there's obvious things that just need tidying up um, and a few other areas where we felt that there may be some scope for a change so we thought now is the time to pull those bits together put a consultation out and then we'll review the responses and, and make a call as to how we proceed. Part of the change is possibly a, a headline grabber streamlining how DEFA applications are dealt with so there is more resource to focus on delivering planning services to the public. So effectively what's being proposed here is that the planning committee can consider DEFA planning applications and yet the planning committee sits under DEFA. Is is there a conflict there? So certainly, uh, I mean, you say it sits under DEFA and I suppose in terms of a technicality that could be the description but, you know, Certainly, I haven't had any engagement with the the planning committee um, in terms of since I've been in post. I don't meet them regularly. Um, I don't see the papers that go to them because obviously I would be engaged in the appeals element. Um, We've separated the planning uh, committee chair from DEFA. So historically, um, not it wasn't set down in in any rules anywhere. But historically, the chair of planning also sat as the planning and building control political member in DEFA. So that was a very early decision I took that I felt actually having a separate chair of planning made a lot of sense um so obviously at the minute we've got rob callister in that role um and he's not sitting in defa he hasn't sat in defa since i've been there and actually i think that provides more healthy relationships that allows him to be the political conduit for the planning committee if there are any concerns around process or so on then he can contact directly into planning or he can come via myself Um, but we don't meet regularly to discuss planning because I think it's absolutely right that the committee are able to make those decisions absolutely unfettered by any external body. Having been a planning minister myself planning ministers did regularly meet with the planning committee uh, to primarily not 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 to discuss planning applications but to discuss the the generality if you like the, the the detail as to what was working and what was not working and how particular uh, problems were arising. So how how does that get fed through uh, at a political level? So interestingly, um, you know, I, I have had one email very recently actually um, from Rob, which I've spoken to him about, um, which was around the time frame. So again, a process thing, um, the time frame from when they receive documents relating to the applications versus when they have to hear them. So asking whether we can increase the time, especially for complex applications, because um, those sometimes are coming in quite late in the week with the meeting then on Monday. Um, which is then meaning that the committee only really have a choice to roll that forward another two weeks which causes a delay so that's something that we're we're really keen to to work on um, but certainly from a, a political perspective it's absolutely not appropriate for me to you know be meeting with the committee I, I don't feel that's the right route in and I feel the only things really from the committee's perspective that they should be referring into DEFA should be relating to process and if there's anything where they feel that there's a problem with policy obviously that would go to cabinet office um, and actually I think having that separation as I say between the planning chair and the political member in planning I think I think has worked well um, but it's obviously important we pick up the process because if things aren't working because haven't got papers early enough then of course I want to do something to, to resolve that. 
So the other changes include things like uh, review the ability to trigger or participate in an appeal. So this is looking at interested person status, amongst other things. What's the thinking behind this? So there's been a number of points around this. Um, so you know, some of the uh, the things we're clarifying is around the the 21 day wait after an application has been approved. If there's no one who has an appeal um, mechanism, why are we waiting 21 days when we actually we could pr- progress quite quickly? Um, there's a question around who should have the rights to have an appeal, um, and there's a number of different opportun- options. Sorry that we've looked at in that regard. Um, you know, I don't. We're not hugely uncomfortable with where we're at, but I think it's absolutely right. We sense check that and talk to the public and see what comes back. Everyone, I know that the uh, planning team feel that you know it's sort of once every political administration we should have a thorough look through planning and see if there's anything we want to change and this gave us a vehicle gave us the opportunity to do that i think it would also just be worth actually just going back actually on the um defer applications one of the interesting things is i think when people think of defer applications we think of defer wanting to build something on our land and yet what we've had recently as an example is actually someone wanting to build a toilet facility who's a tenant on defer land who's then got to go through quite an onerous process in terms of us bringing the appeals inspector in going straight through and also not having any appeals function because that would then go have to go straight to a dolience claim um, so it means that people who are tenants of defa land actually are probably disadvantaged under the current system so providing a different function different mechanism i think would be very helpful for a number of people because as you'll know yourself we do have quite a few tenants actually within defa the the converse of that is uh, if for example uh, the department decided it wanted to build a new headquarters it, perhaps that's getting a bit too close bearing in mind that the all the legislations surrounding the planning committee and the appointments and everything are very much under under your control as minister uh, maybe maybe something like that might be a bit too close to the bone in in terms of uh, consideration. And of course there would still be the opportunity there for council ministers to make a determination to call such an application in certainly if it was a bigger application that function would sit and we know that um, that that sits embedded in the legislation but I suppose that's really the point we're consulting, that's why we're asking the question Um, you know we can certainly see that there would potentially be some benefit to having a shift Um, we don't feel that the conflict in terms of the planning committee exists we believe the planning committee are absolutely um, empowered to act independently and that's absolutely how it must be and how it must remain Um, but also it would we we believe free up some time in terms of the preparation of documents in terms of um, instructing an appeals uh, inspector to to take that on as an application Um, and we hope you know, as I say, speed up more generally the process, which is very much where the built environment reform program piece comes about. And you, you mentioned earlier about the fast track household appeals uh, process. Um, three weeks, which effectively is the is the, the cut off point at the moment. Twenty one days after the notification is given that uh, a decision has been made, uh, you have that, that twenty one days to make an appeal. Three weeks isn't that long, particularly bearing in mind that people do go away on holiday and potentially could be away for two weeks and then they come back and find that they they may need to consider an appeal. And sometimes these appeals can be quite costly affairs for people producing evidence and developing a case. Is there a big pressure to to alter that three weeks? So this is very much though around those people where there isn't anyone who would have a right to an appeal. So it's if if the householder isn't going to appeal the decision themselves because it's, I would assume, in favour of their decision, then we would not 
we would essentially allow that fast track. There would be no one else then who would hold the right to appeal because if they hadn't made a representation early on. So I suppose what we're trying to uh, avoid is someone who hasn't considered the item at the point of an application at all so all through the planning process there's been nothing there and then suddenly at an appeal stage decides to come in uh, and, and lodge a, an appeal um, so I think there would it's not just the 21 days there would have been the process at which planning goes through which as we know um, I know we we aim for eight weeks but in reality with some of the changes that people might submit around an application um, it can be considerably longer which I think is reasonable for people to have come up with any objections they have within that time frame and if they're lodged then this wouldn't be accept this wouldn't be available to the householder okay um and um the, the, the thing that I know, certainly in, in, in relation to the planning applications that come through to Arbury and Russian, uh, the vast majority of these are approved, aren't they? I think there's sometimes a misconception out there in, 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 the, in, in the general public that um, uh, planning is there to stop development, but uh, most applications get supported, don't they? They do. It's interesting you say that, actually, because you know, I think even I would probably have had a perception, because as a politician um, you tend to hear about the ones where it didn't go someone's way as opposed to the ones where everything just ticked through quite normally um, and you know, there's also the different routes it can go through so there are you know, an, an, a considerable number of applications which will be decided by an officer obviously ones where there's the you know, requisite number of objections or it meets certain criteria then go to planning committee um, and then there's the, the present defer applications or those ones that councillor ministers would call in go to councillor ministers so there's different processes but as you say the vast majority in fact are approved um, and part of that as well and one of the reasons we don't always hit the eight week uh, which I think is quite an arbitrary number and if you look at some of the ways they do it in the UK for example actually there's a bit of fiddling around with those numbers so you can't compare uh, apples with apples so to speak but actually when we look at the th th that time frame I do think that it allows the officers to go back to someone and say for example actually such and such a planning policy would indicate that this could be difficult to accept in the current form. But if you were to change it to a slightly different version, that would be more likely to be acceptable. And you know, certainly from all of the experiences where I've got involved subsequently, either with cases in Douglas East or cases where I've looked at, back at them post-appeal, which obviously is the only point where I can dig into cases because of the function I hold, actually... The, the planning officers have worked with people. They really have. Um, and I would always encourage people to go and speak with the planning officers, either engage someone who can support you with planning um, you know, through one of the, the people who are available on the island, or go and work with the planning team, who are more than happy, because ultimately it's in their interest not to have complex queries throughout the process, but to get those ironed out early on and get the, get the process uh, going couple of other things uh, in this consultation um, the uh, expanding the minor change provisions so that uh, approvals which incorporate fossil fuel boilers can be amended to remove them is um, are, are we ready for this change because uh, we hear certainly from some architects uh, who I've spoken to who who say that they're being told that the energy infrastructure, the electricity infrastructure isn't ready uh, to take a significant increase in demand from electrical powered um, uh, heating systems. Um, 
are, are we ready to make these changes? So I think we are ready and we have had a lead in time. We've obviously made a call recently that for those new builds, there was a hope we might be able to bring that forward to 2024, but we've actually acknowledged that that would not be sensible or realistic. And that was after consultation with the industry. Um, so we're sticking with the 2025 date. What we're very much looking at doing though in terms of the the changes with fossil fuel boilers is focusing on those newer builds or new new parts of houses where they have their own heating system so i don't see this as being a sudden huge shift into um, electrified heating i think what absolutely is a valid point is as we move into the next step which will be looking at current housing we know some people early adopters are moving into air source heat pumps ground source heat pumps already but we also know that there's a significant housing stock on the island that is still heated through fossil fuel um, heating systems and it will be really important i know it's a piece of work we're already engaged with in climate change um, in terms of how we do that and ensure that the grid can cope with the demand that that will bring. Um, and we know that's the case with electric vehicles as well. So it's absolutely, I believe, the right course of uh, travel. We're in the right direction of travel. But we do have to be aware as we start to do the bigger piece, I'm not concerned in terms of the, the impact this specific piece would have. And finally, planning uh, is an essential element of development. Uh, your government is keen for there to be lots of development. Um, how does increasing planning fees help? I mean, it obviously helps your department. Yeah, but also, you know, we have to acknowledge that we you know, planning is predominantly a, a person-based thing, and we have um, you know, we have costs of employment of those people to bear. Um, we've also looked to put additional personnel in the planning department for the very reason you know, we talked about earlier in terms of trying to process those applications quicker, more efficiently, trying to respond to queries. Um, you know, we, we would have a few more if we could recruit because we know it's also a challenging area because it's a very specialist skill. Um, and as much as I, I hear people's frustration with planning, I can assure you we have an exceptional planning team with a wealth of knowledge, you know, really working full tilt trying to get planning applications done you know it, it's absolutely not the case that they're deliberately disrupting and, and causing any mischief they want to get these done but ultimately there are questions that are you know, and answers that need to be found um but the the fees is essentially to look to try and recover the cost against planning to make sure that we are um you know achieving what we need to achieve and and making sure we're keeping that in step with where inflation sits i mean it could be argued that rather than handing over large grants to develop luxury flats maybe the, that money could be better spent in the department uh, keep your fees down so to, to reasonable levels and encourage more people to to put in planning applications and get more development moving that's a, a possibility uh, but presumably not one that you think the treasury minister would support no i think and i think realistically at the minute we're not in a position where we can drop fees and i think you know, when you look um, at the planning fees and the building control fees as a percentage actually of the overall cost of an average project, project I get my words right, um, actually I think that uh, our, our fees are very fair, very reasonable in terms of that wider cost. We know building construction costs are, are significant, um, but it's also really important we get that right, you know, certainly around planning and very much around building control. You know, I, I think it's absolutely a service that's imperative for us more broadly um, and one that we should be you know, comfortable saying there is a cost that comes with that because we need to get it right. So 
I, I recognise people would like a, a dip in fees. Um, I think one of the interesting things actually is some of the the organisations that, that don't pay fees. So obviously local authorities, one area we know that um, government doesn't pay pay fees. That's how it's structured at the minute. My one of my concerns is more broadly how you then make sure a project is able to fully recover its cost. If as DEFA we're picking up the the slack there, um, and that's something I've already spoken to Treasury more broadly about just us understanding how we make sure that we're properly at assigning cost for a few people in the isle of man a renegotiated or or newly formed fisheries management agreement is exciting news so you're speaking to one of the people who thinks this is exciting news tell us about this yes absolutely is exciting news and uh, it's great to talk to someone who's as equally enthusiastic um, but I'd say you know we've been working with the Manx Fish Producers Organisation we've been working with the external relations team on this um, the fisheries officers in DEFA have been working full pelt and with their counterparts in the other jurisdictions so it, on the plus side you know we're not in isolation there's a good chunk of people who recognise just how important this is um, but we were operating under the fisheries management agreement 2012 which obviously you're very familiar with um, and there came an opportunity because that was predicated on the positioning around um, the European Union mm. and the um, accession that we had to that um, actually the vast majority of it just didn't make sense at the point that Brexit happened so there became an opportunity to start negotiations with the UK um, and we were really pleased to say that following through those negotiations putting a position together we were happy with putting uh, that piece of work through the Manx Fish Producers Organisation making sure we're working with external relations we have been able to sign a new fisheries management agreement um, just a a few weeks ago um, that's been signed by all of the um, nations that are affected by it. One of the drawbacks of the initial fisheries management agreement, which was agreed back in the 1990s, I think, uh, when we first got uh, um, further um, or an extension from the three mile limit out to 12 miles, um, the, 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 the concern of that initial fisheries management agreement was effectively other, um, well, UK uh, countries were able to veto uh, our policies. It, the the 2012 agreement managed to reduce that. I mean, it was still uh, allowed input from the other jurisdictions, but it um, it was very much a case of if you put forward a reasonable case that was well argued and had support from the industry, uh, another government couldn't um, step in or, or stop. Uh, uh, any proposals from taking place so so is is that still the case in the new fisheries management agreement so the positioning with the new fisheries management agreement is that we have uh, autom- autonomy over our domestic management measures which i think is really important um and there are still areas which we've agreed obviously we would work with we're not going to go completely lone uh, lone ranger on this um you know we want to work with the other uh, fisheries that we we have as I say, regular engagement with from our fisheries officers. But it's really important we recognise the the autonomy of our government and our fisheries team to make the right decisions for our waters. Um, And that's been a big piece. And obviously post-Brexit, the UK had far more control over their coastal areas. And that was what allowed us then to formalise an agreement with them on this. So 
the advantages then from the the new fisheries management agreement uh, what would you say that are the big changes or the the significant improvements so the the key areas really is around us being able to make decisions specifically in our waters some of that will be about uh, you know some of the access to quota which we've been able to get as well which is really positive some of that will be around us really looking at what areas we want to protect through our management reserves as well um you know those management areas and and what controls we might put into what fishing can occur here i think is really important because we recognize that there's a huge element of interplay between fisheries and the environment um, and that sits really well within the DEFA portfolio um, and what we're seeing is through the long-term management plans actually for king Solops moving into the queen scallops area on that working with DEFA, working alongside the um, fish producers actually we're getting to a position where we're able to it protect the environment while also preserving stocks for the future. So it really is a, a win on both fronts. And if there are any Scottish, uh, Irish or English, or even a few Welsh fishermen listening to, to, to this programme, um, should they be concerned about this new agreement? So the, there, we know that there are still vessels that fish in our waters, but it's right that we're able to set the rules around how that should happen. And that would be the same. We would expect our own vessels to meet those same standards. And those ultimately will be to preserve the future of our fisheries. Um, and in doing so, we recognise there are huge benefits to the environment too. And we heard in, in Tinwald, Paul Crane put forward this uh, petition in relation to gaining benefit um, out to the median line as opposed to just the 12 mile limit um, do you th- is, is, does government have any appetite to uh, well presumably you will have an appetite to take some money if, if the United Kingdom government was willing to give it and I think that is exactly where the challenge lies. So this has been looked at before, whether it be the continental shelf, whether it be the, the median line. The reality is that the the government hasn't had an appetite to just hand that over um, and they have no uh, obligation to either. Um, the agreement that we have between us is, is different to that between um, England and Scotland, for example. So as much as I recognise some of the changes that have happened there, we're in a different situation. Um, so absolutely the position that I'm in is that I want to make sure that within what we have currently available to us we're maximizing our opportunities ensuring that we retain that autonomy and looking to maximize the benefit for the future of the Isle of Man. And in terms then of the new fisheries management agreement uh, any bold initiatives that uh, the department's going to be able to come forward with now that uh, perhaps it's been hindered uh, uh, by the, the previous agreement? Well, I suppose I'm not going to speculate on anything, predominantly actually because it's a very much a teamwork piece of uh, piece for me. Um, you know, it can't be just for DEFA to do this to those working in the fisheries sector. It's got to be us all working together. And actually, that's the beauty of those long term management plans, because what happens is you've got the right people sitting around the right tables, making decisions that absolutely ensure that we've got fisheries that are fit for the future. And for me, that's the biggest win of everything in this. And, and perhaps people don't know this, but uh, you have uh, your scallop management boards, uh, which includes scientists, officers and fishermen. 
yeah, absolutely. Scientists, officers, fishermen, and fishermen from else, you know, external um, organisations as well. So we know we have had representatives from other fisheries, um, and I think that's what makes it so rich. Is actually you're bringing a wealth of knowledge together to make proposals for the future, um, and I think it's something we should you know, really look to extend across a number of different areas. Actually, because having the science to back up those decisions, but also working with the people whose livelihoods are you know dependent upon them. I think makes an incredibly powerful narrative when we're making decisions and as I say allows us to to really have that uh, broader view I suppose so it doesn't become just one piece um, you know I would be concerned I suppose if it was entirely an environmental positioning or it was in entirely economic positioning actually doesn't it tie in just exactly with our biosphere reserve status and the principles of that that we're looking at the delicate balance that exists between all of those priorities. That was DEFA Minister Claire Barber. Does the new fisheries management agreement go far enough? Are we right to keep in with our neighbours or would we be better going it alone? And what do you think of the seemingly innocuous proposal that the planning committee should be allowed to consider applications linked to DEFA? DEFA, of course, controls the policy and legislation which the planning committee must follow, so some might reasonably perceive this relationship as too close. Don't forget this programme is available as a podcast on Max Radio's website. I'm Phil Gorn. Good on my own. Thanks for listening.